when people come to treatment, these are very, very vulnerable people. You know, you're talking about people who are very ill with an eating disorder and perhaps other illnesses as well. And you're talking about, you know, parents or loved ones or spouses of someone who, who are terrified. And when you're in a position of being terrified and desperate for help, and you have someone in a position of authority who has a degree, who's trained in this, you know, you, of course you expect that person to have the answers. You are listening to the Eating Disorders Recovery Podcast with me, Tabitha Farrar. Hello. Today you'll hear my conversation about finding an effective eating disorder therapist with Florida-based licensed psychotherapist, Dr. Sarah Raven. I'm thrilled to be able to publish this information in podcast form because finding a good eating disorder therapist is far from easy. I have to explain this to people a lot, but there is no regulation around who can call themselves an eating disorder therapist. So it can be terribly confusing to parents and sufferers alike who are new to the concept of eating disorders. I think one of the biggest nightmare scenarios is when a parent initially starts looking for help and the first expert in voted commas that they come across is someone who uses psychotherapy methods rather than evidence-based treatment because they can be very convincing that they know what they're doing. What often ensues is that months or years of ineffective therapy, and this not only wastes the sufferer's time and the parent's money, but it allows the eating disorder to become more established and entrenched. It's a huge problem, and a large portion of the advocacy work that the International Eating Disorders Action Group and other groups do is to shed light on these problems that the industry faces. Anyway, so here is my conversation with Dr. Sarah Raven. I hope you find it useful, and if you do, please share this information with others so that we can spread understanding about this important issue. I start by finding out some more about Dr. Raven. So first of all, can can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I'm a clinical psychologist. Um, I work in private practice, and I've been in private practice for the past seven years. Um, I am in Coral Gables, Florida, which is a suburb of Miami, and I specialize in working with eating disorders, um, primarily in adolescents, although I also see uh, young adults and children. Um, I would say about uh, 50 or 60 percent of the patients I see have eating disorders, and the rest um, usually have uh, depression, anxiety, some sort of OCD type related disorder. Oh, wow. I th- I can think of a hundred questions. I'd like to ask <laughs> right about all of those things. Um, but, but just uh, how did you get into actually eating disorders specifically? How did that start for you? Well, I, I want to say it happened by accident, but I guess in hindsight, you might say it was serendipity. Um, I, uh, so I was a graduate student in Washington, D.C. Uh, I went to American University. And um, in the fourth year of our training, we had the opportunity to complete a rotation, a training rotation at uh, different clinics around the city. And so I was sort of looking through the list and, oh, this is an adolescent eating disorders clinic. This looks interesting. You know, it was a population that I hadn't worked with before. And um, it it just, you know, sort of piqued my interest. And I decided to do that um, more to sort of broaden my horizons than anything else. And um, I ended up uh, really, really enjoying the work and kind of really clicking with 
uh, the population. Um, they were mostly middle school and high school uh, patients there. And um, that's where I was first introduced to family-based treatment, which was very new at the time. So this was like 2004 to 2006. Yeah. And um, so that's how I, I initially got into the field. And, um, you know, from that point forward, I just started reading everything that I could on the topic and um, going to conferences. And um, a few years ago, I became involved with FEAST, uh, Families Empowered and Supporting Treatment for Eating Disorders. And so I'm a professional advisor for them now. Oh, and I also, you know, I also do a fair amount of blogging on the topic of uh, specifically evidence-based treatments for eating disorders. Yeah, um, Feast is very close to my heart. They are <laughs> the website that um, quite literally gave me the tools that I needed at the time. Um, so I actually was was in that recovery stage almost 10 years ago now, and, and Feast was all about family-based therapy, which... Um, when I first got onto the Feast website, that was the first time I'd ever heard of such practices. Um, mm -hmm. And as a sufferer, when I first read about making children eat, I was appalled. You know, my eating disorder kicked off and I was like, oh my God, that's so unethical, it's awful. Um, I obviously pretty quickly turned my, around my opinion on that um, and FBT'd myself to, um, into recovery. So I, I'm interested in in what the um, professional scene was like in 2004, attitudes towards family-based therapy, and, and maybe you should explain a little bit more for anybody that's listening what family-based therapy is before we start. Sure, sure. So family-based therapy is um, a relatively new form of treatment in which uh, the family is empowered to help the sufferer. Um, restore their weight and resume normal eating habits and then return to typical adolescent development. Um, and it's a, it's a very different stance from traditional treatment because in, in family-based treatment, FBT, the parents are seen as the child's greatest resource in recovery. And the parents are actually the primary agents of change um, initially, in the initial stage of treatment. Um, whereas in, in more traditional types of treatment, the parents are not included in the treatment and kind of the, the responsibility for recovering is placed on the adolescent, which is just really ineffective and, and, and often kind of cruel, in my opinion. Um, so I, I think your, your question was what, was, what was the state of the field like back in 2004? Well, it was, I've actually seen a a change over the course of my relatively brief career, a change for the better, um, in the sense that, you know, when I first walked into that clinic, it was Laura, Laura Collins' book, Eating With Your Anorexic, was published, like, right around, like, it was basically the day I started. That book was handed to me, and, um, and just sort of walking in there, it, it was my first, my, my first encounter with eating disorders treatment was in the context of a family-based approach, right? So to me, it, it, it made complete intuitive sense. And to me, it seemed very obvious that a person who has an illness that makes them terrified to eat should have help from others, you know, from their family members to, to restore weight and recover. That seemed blatantly obvious to me. But in, in, in doing that and in working there, it, it also became apparent to me that there were many people who 
had no idea that that was even an option and many other clinicians who were very hostile to that approach. And I think what I've seen over the past like 10 to 12 years is that SBT is, has grown from this sort of like, you know, brand new way out there approach. Um, like at the time, for example, when I was in graduate school, I remember going back to my um, to my professors and my classes and like doing presentations on it. And the professors had no idea what it was, what I was talking about. Um, like even the one that specialized in eating disorders was like, oh, that's odd, you know, and I was like, okay, you should probably know about this. Um, but, um, but anyway, so that was like, you know, 2004 to 2006 ish. But what I've seen since then is, um, a growing, I guess, at least a growing awareness in the field that, um, you know, that FBT is the way to go. It is the gold standard for, um, treatment for adolescents, but, Within certain, there are certain circles in which SBT is more accepted than others. So, for example, I, I think in more academic circles, um, like for example, the the Academy for Eating Disorders, which is a um, global professional organization of um, researchers, professors, and clinicians who treat eating disorders. There's there's a lot more emphasis on science and research and evidence based treatment in those meetings. So I end up. You know, I have like multiple different seminars to choose from that that um, interest me and that are related to evidence based treatment and family based treatment. Whereas some of the more, um, I guess, like grassroots, uh, I don't know if grassroots is the right term, but organizations like NIDA or um, things like that, the the organizations that I think cater mostly towards sufferers and recovered sufferers tend to have a more like love your body rainbows and unicorns mm -hmm. type approach oh, yeah. which you know which is is, is not in and of itself a, a bad message but it's just really not super it's, helpful it's just not effective really is it? right I mean, it's, it's a nice no. message for anyone to yes. love yourself i mean whoopie do great um yeah exactly. it's not going to help anybody that's got a serious eating disorder get over it exactly exactly so um so now i i think now the field is is in a state where the people who, who matter, in my opinion, like the people that I look up to, the people that I admire, the people whose careers I follow are people who embrace um, family-based treatment and other evidence-based treatments for eating disorders. And the people who don't, I, I really don't um, associate with much or, or, um, or follow because it's just that the way that they do things is so completely counter to everything that I believe and everything that I stand for, that it, it's not, it's really not even a helpful dialogue, mm -hmm. you know? And I, I'm, I'm interested in to, as to what your thoughts are around that uh, hostility by some therapists towards family-based therapy, because for, for those of us that have used it, um, it's sort of, it's a, it seems like a bit of a no-brainer. It works. Why would anybody decide not to use this form of treatment what your thoughts are around that well i think there are there are a number of um reasons behind the hostility towards it i think one one such opposition is kind of the the hostility towards evidence-based practice in general um and um so just for for listeners who might not be familiar uh, evidence-based practice in psychology is uh, the integration of the best available research 
with clinical expertise in the context of patient characteristics, culture, and preferences. So basically what that means is that in, you know, when a psychologist is choosing what type of treatment intervention to give to a particular patient, they should have knowledge of the research base and take that into account in, um, you know, in selecting and implementing their treatment. Um, also, you know, taking into consideration this individual patient, the family they come from, their culture, their, you know, desires and preferences, et cetera. Um, but there, there's sort of a, a, a fairly large uh, group of people who don't really support the notion of of evidence-based treatment at all because they view uh, psychotherapy as more of an art, right. um, as something that's kind of more like a craft that like you can't ever really um, teach or measure or quantify. And, um, and, and so, and, and if you think about it, like in terms of artwork, like in terms of painting, you know, there's something about a Picasso or a Monet or a, you know, Degas that you can't really quite explain in words or quantify or judge. So, um, so I think that they're sort of coming at it from a very different angle. Well, um, all I can say is, is I'm, I'm glad that um, surgeons and people that perform <laughs> operations don't think of it as just an art that cannot be valued or, or judged. Can you imagine if the medical treatment for physical illnesses was something that could be considered an, an art form or one that could not be measured or judged? It would be an utter disaster. God forbid you ever have to go under the knife, but if you do, you can thank your lucky stars that your surgeon is following medically approved practices and not fancying herself as the medical equivalent of Picasso. Let's keep artwork in the galleries and stick to tried and proven practices when it comes to messing around with people's health, please. Exactly, exactly. But um, I also think, you know, part of part of the problem is that um, it, it there may be somewhat of a generational piece to this. And, and this is, you know, I'm making a sweeping generalization here because I've encountered older clinicians who are very much in favor of evidence based treatments. But I think that there are, you know, a number of clinicians, you know, maybe who were trained in the 60s or 70s or 80s and were taught, you know, that eating disorders are caused by over controlling mothers and absent fathers and that this is all about control. And, you know, these sort of myths that that have since been disproven but that it, it really what evidence-based treatment tells us is that none of those myths have any any validity whatsoever and um that effective treatment has to be a lot more symptom focused right. um and um and i think that a lot of clinicians who who um have have established their careers on the basis of of this sort of therapy as an art or as a craft um, or on the basis of like a more relational approach or psychodynamic approach um, that's you know much harder to quantify. I think they may feel threatened by evidence-based treatment um, because there's you know the the possibility that it will it will run them out of business. Yeah. So I think that is an element of of the debate as well. It's very difficult if, especially if somebody is not familiar with the world of eating disorders. I mean, most of us have been in it for years now and, and sort of know people within it. And we know that who the well-established therapists are that do practice evidence-based treatment and FBT. But for anybody that is new to the world of it, it can be really confusing because somebody says... I'm an eating disorder therapist, but then you un, you realize after a couple of years that not all eating disorder therapists are equal or they don't exactly. practice the same medicine. Um, 
So how does a new parent go about finding somebody to help their child? The, the primary recommendation that I would give to parents is to educate yourself and empower yourself because you're going to have to become an expert on eating disorders in order to help your child. Mm. Um, and so, and the way that a parent um, would or should go about finding the best therapist for their child, I think is completely different from the way that a responsible parent would go about finding a pediatrician or a dentist or, you know, a dermatologist. Um, when we're looking for, you know, for a doctor, for a child in any other field, we would typically think, okay, who takes our insurance? Or um, who does my neighbor see? Or um, who is closest to our home or closest to my office or things like that. Um, but th those those criteria are really completely unhelpful when it comes to selecting an eating disorder clinician because the vast majority, and I don't have statistics on this, but the majority of clinicians um, who treat eating disorders do not practice evidence-based treatments. Um, so someone may, you know, may say they specialize in eating disorders and um, they may have, you know, 20 years of experience or 30 years of experience in the field, um, but they may still be practicing a very um, outdated and disproven method of treatment that involves, you know, helping the patient to develop insight um, into her emotions and, you know, that she needs to take responsibility for her own recovery and, you know, they view parents kind of inherently with suspicion. Mm -hmm. uh, that's another, that's a big thing. I think to me, that's a red flag. This view of parents with suspicion at the outset. Yeah. Um, that's, that, that's something that always turns me off. And it's something that like, I can hear even, even in some, um, you know, more people that I would consider to be more friendly to evidence-based treatment. There's always like a little hint of it. This, uh, this tiny little hint of, oh, you know, this, this parent really wants to be involved in her daughter's treatment and it's very overwhelming for the patient because, you know, the patient's 19 and, you know, the mother wants to know her child's weight and like, well, well, of course she wants to know. That's an important detail. It's not like there's something wrong with this parent because she wants this knowledge of that's relevant to her child's recovery and it doesn't really matter how old the child is you know yeah. um so that's I, I think that's a big red flag but um but for parents who are looking for a clinician for their child I, I think it's very important to speak with the therapist first before you expose your child to them um because in, in, in speaking with someone over the phone or perhaps like having an initial consultation with the person in person, you can really get a sense of, you know, okay, what form of treatment do you practice? Tell me more about this form of treatment. You know, how effective is it? Can you provide me with um, some literature on this type of treatment? And even, you know, in having that initial conversation, that's going to tell you a lot. So for example, if, if you're a parent looking for treatment for your child and the therapist won't talk to you, that's a red flag, right? You want to have a therapist who's going to welcome the involvement of, of concerned family members. And the same, I, I would say the same for um, if you're looking for treatment for your spouse or significant other. Um, it's, it's basically the same thing, you know, a, a concerned loved one who is trying to find um, the right treatment for a sufferer. 
Um, and if, uh, you know, if you do get to the stage where you're having a phone conversation with the clinician or you're meeting with this clinician in person and you ask them about what form of treatment they do, um, and if they're, if they're kind of vague and flaky about it, that's a red flag too, mm-hmm. because I, I, I believe that clinicians should be transparent about what they do. Like, look, this is the form of treatment that I typically do with this population. This is why, you know, here is a summary of the literature about this form of treatment. This has been my experience, you know, with, with patients of, you know, this age with this diagnosis, it tends to take, you know, X number of months until they get to this stage and yada, yada, yada. Um, I think there's a lot more specificity in terms of the goals of treatment and in terms of measuring the outcome of treatment when you're working with an evidence-based therapist. And, you know, as opposed to, oh, I just take your son or daughter into a room and magic happens and you're not allowed to know what goes on in there. Exactly. Which Exactly. um, And... I, I mean, I, I'm not I'm not a professional. I'm just a recovered sufferer. But I do get approached and asked lots of questions from readers and listeners. And the, some of the words that I say a lot are find another therapist. <laughs> They'll say, oh, she, she's in treatment. So I ask, so what do you, well, what's going on in treatment? Oh, I, I don't know because the therapist doesn't tell me. Find another therapist. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And and I'm, I'm in a position fairly frequently of, of, seeing patients who have been through multiple other therapists and or multiple residential treatment centers and have never gotten better. Yeah. And, um, and the parents have never either have been overtly or subtly blamed for causing the illness. And then other, other patients who've never been told that this is a biologically based illness with a very strong genetic component. Like it blows people's minds when they, when they first hear this, like, and and, and even if this is a patient who's let's say been in treatment for five years and has been, you know, to two different residential treatment centers, no one has ever taken the time to sit down and explain this to the patient. And, and I find that just appalling. I find it appalling as well. I find it appalling that it, like you said, I have people that have been in treatment centers that find my blog and write to me and say, wow, I never knew that this was a genetic based illness or anything like that. And I'm just like pulling my hair out. Right. I'm not a professional. I'm, I'm not, you know, this shouldn't be who you hear it from. It should have exactly. been the or the treatment center. Exactly. Asking the right questions about the therapist's own beliefs about eating disorders is important. Dr. Raven then went on to talk about what to ask when it comes to treatment approaches and plans. Well, I, I think that, um, you know, when you're, when you're looking for a therapist for eating disorder recovery, you definitely want to make sure you're seeing someone who focuses on the, the life-threatening symptoms first and aggressively. So, you know, if we're talking about someone with an eating disorder that involves binging and purging, for example, those symptoms need to be addressed uh, hardcore right away. And that needs to be happening, you know, as soon as the person enters treatment, um, because if, if those symptoms are not addressed initially, then just the act of binging and purging or the act of restricting, number one, you know, causes a lot of medical problems. And number two, perpetuates the psychological, emotional symptoms of the illness. So um, not addressing those symptoms aggressively at the outset, I think, is a big red flag. So find out how they intend to approach treatment. Dr. Raven then went on to further explain why investigating into the treatment approach is so important. 
I would say someone who um, is open in terms of explaining the etiology or the causes um, of eating disorders or, at, you know, or what we do and don't know about the factors that, um, you know, predispose people and um, can trigger or precipitate eating disorders. I think that's important um, because those, the way that a clinician thinks about those issues are going to inform the treatment that they provide. Mm -hmm. So if, if someone believes that eating disorders are caused by you know, dysfunctional family dynamics, then, you know, their, their treatment approach is going to be um, focused on repairing those supposed dysfunctional family dynamics mm -hmm. while the person is restricting and purging and whatever else is going on. So, um, so that's, I think that's another important factor to take into consideration. And I think a lot of the problem is, is that if there is, if, if, a uh, parent is talking to a therapist that say like that example they believe in this dis dysfunctional family dynamics they can just be so convincing though can't they that mm -hmm. that is the problem and that's what needs to address and that the eating disorder will miraculously evaporate or disappear when the person is feeling fulfilled in their family life or whatever yes absolutely and i think that's and i think that's a, a problem is that when people come to treatment these are very, very vulnerable people. You know, you're talking about people who are very ill with an eating disorder and perhaps other illnesses as well. And you're talking about, you know, parents or loved ones or spouses of someone who, who are terrified. And when you're in a position of being terrified and desperate for help, and you have someone in a position of authority who has a degree who's trained in this, you know, you, of course, you expect that person to have the answers. Yeah. Um, so that's, uh, yeah. I'm glad that you brought that up because actually one, one thing that stood out to me in when, when I was sick, um, and my, my GP, one of my GPs at the time, um, tried very hard to convince me that I was doing something to myself because it was sort of digging for any family problems, which is because I had the most loving parents in mm -hmm. almost as if they were trying to convince me that, I was doing this because of, of some sort of really strange family dynamic. And, and you know, it's, it was almost tempting to believe them as well. Yes. And I also do come across um, adult sufferers, mostly, that, that have sort of bought into um, any of these concepts by, by, that a therapist has given them, and they believe it, the sufferer believes it themselves, that right. this is the result of a trauma in childhood or this is the result because mum and dad broke up when I was seven. Um, right. And, and it's, it's incredibly difficult once, once a sufferer has been treated by someone that's been telling them that this is why you're doing this and this is the problem. The sufferer can latch onto that to justify the behavior and, and it can be very difficult to even um, convince a sufferer that no, actually what you need to do is eat. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Because I think um, uh, believing that your eating disorder is the result of a trauma or family dynamics or, or poor self-esteem or something like that, that's also a distraction from the real issue. The, you know, it's a distraction from the immediacy of having to eat a whole lot of food. Yeah, it, I mean, it's exactly what an eating disorder wants to hear. Oh, it's okay. You don't have to eat. We can talk about it. 
or we can mm-hmm. talk about your family or we can talk about something. Of course, the eating disorder is going to want to hear that. And of course, mm-hmm. the eating disorder is going to want to believe that. And I think a lot of that is why these practices get sustained because right. eating disorder patients like that sort of therapy because it's ineffective because their eating right. disorder does not want to, them to recover. Exactly. And there, and you know, I've spoken with people who've been in therapy for years and years and years and have never gained a pound. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's, it's absurd. Do you think that it's important or, um, that say an eating disorder therapist specializes in a particular sort of eating disorder? So, you know, somebody might specialize in anorexia, another might specialize in bulimia, or do you think that they're all similar enough that one therapist can specialize in, in all eating disorders? I, that's a good question. I would tend to say that the latter is true, that one therapist can specialize in all of the eating disorders. Um, but I think, I mean, well, just as, sort of as a personal example, I, I work primarily um, with with anorexia and ARFID and some bulimia. But then, uh, you know, initially when binge eating disorder um, was first added to the DSM, which was only a few years ago, I was reluctant. Um, I, you know, I was reluctant to to treat people with that condition because I, I just felt like I didn't have, um, I didn't have the, the knowledge or the expertise. So it's been kind of um, you know, it's, it's been, I, I really had to, to do a lot of, of reading and research um, before I felt comfortable taking that on. But what I've come to see and learn is that if you are a well-trained clinician and you understand clinical research and you understand how to apply research to practice, um, there are really more similarities than differences between the eating disorders. So even, for example, with, with binge eating disorder, there's the the necessity of uh, normalizing nutrition, like normalizing nutrition throughout the day and, um, and getting rid of any sort of restrictive eating behaviors is just as important for someone with BED as it is for someone with anorexia nervosa, because, you know, the cycles of restrictive eating, I mean, it, it plays out differently in binge eating disorder. Um, you know, in binge eating disorder, might like maybe someone goes to Weight Watchers and they're on that for a few days, and then that leads to binge eating, and you know something like that. Whereas for someone with anorexia, you know, restricting tends to lead to more restricting and more weight loss. But but um, the same, I mean. <sighs> The, the necessity of, of normalizing eating patterns um, and being very directive about that and then addressing, you know, the other issues, any any social or emotional issues that may have been like triggering or exacerbating factors later, that's the same regardless of what type of eating disorder you're treating. So I, I would have to say that, that um um, I think by default, a lot of clinicians do tend to see people more with one type of eating disorder than another, but I don't think it's necessary to specialize in, in one or the other. Learn more about you. Well, I, I have a website and a blog. Um, so my website is www.drsarahraven.com, and you can just click on blog, and that uh, will take you to my blog. Probably, I would say the majority of my blog posts are on eating disorders, and the others are on you know related topics in mental health. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you. And I will link to all of those things. If you send me those links, or um, I'll get them. Oh, sure. I'll link to all of those in the notes to um, this podcast episode. I'm just excited that I will have somebody that I can just 
something a resource I can just refer people to listen to this because I get asked it all the time right you know it's I'm just like oh it's so difficult and sometimes Mm -hmm. people don't really believe me when I say look you're not all therapists are the same like (laughs) right right like why but you know they I think they're or they're a bit suspicious and sometimes I get people that say well we found this one and she's close to home and she seems nice and we'll stick with her for a bit and then they come back a year later and say it hasn't worked but they kind of had to learn that for themselves and I've I've actually observed yeah I've observed that that once people like a lot of my patients come are kind of self-referred like their parents find me online because their kid's been in therapy for a year or two and has gotten worse and no one ever told them that family-based treatment was an option. Yeah. And those parents, I mean, they'll, they'll drive four or five hours to get to my office and they don't care. Like they, they would rather do so it right. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's, and, and that's really what it comes down to. I also, I, I get that one a lot when I say, okay, you're in this area, you should go to this person. It's, oh, that person's still a couple of hours away from where we are. We're going to go mm-hmm. to this one closer. And then they just realize they wasted six months. Yep, um, exactly. And it's it's a shame, and I wish people didn't have to learn it. I, I look forward to a point in the industry where it's just commonplace that yes. effective family-based therapy or evidence-based treatments are used, but we're definitely not there yet. No, we're not. I have linked to Dr. Raven's website in the show notes for this episode. I know that this information will be extremely valuable to some of you, and I urge you to share this with other people who you might know who are looking for an eating disorder therapist. Or share it with someone if you suspect that the eating disorder therapist that they're already using is not getting the results that they should be. We're talking about results like weight gain, if that is needed, as a priority, cessation of eating disorder behaviors, also good communication with the parents is vital, and also an urgency to restore the patient to physical health again as a priority. Thanks for listening. I hope you found this helpful. My name is Tabitha Farrar. You can get me on Twitter. The handle is at love underscore fat underscore. Cheers. And until next time, cheerio.